0: When so much around you is changing, you really quickly have to figure out who you are. Passion is one of the most contagious things that we encounter, like as a
1: species, especially when we know it's authentic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sagan Experience, the show where we explore how you become the absolute best version of yourself. Today, I am joined by Paul Volchev. Paul Volchev is one of the most well traveled people I know. I haven't flown to over 80 countries. He is a account executive in sales at Salesforce and a really, really good dear friend of mine. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, dude. Appreciate it. Um, I don't have any notes for this one. We're going to kind of wing it a little bit. Uh, It's going to be a nice little conversation. Yeah, man. Uh, But one thing I want to start off with is, you know, go way back into your childhood. I'm going to start most podcasts like this and kind of (laughs) Take the story to present day. Sure. So uh, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, dude, that's a question that's kind of like haunted me in a way,
0: which is uh, I was born outside of St. Louis, Missouri, Mm -hmm. on the Illinois side. My dad was in the military. Um, And as a consequence of that, we moved as a family uh, like 13 times before my 18th birthday. Um, Something like it's something close to that. And so as, as I think a consequence of that, like the question that has... Been most challenging to tackle my whole life is like the where are you from, (laughs) right? Because regardless of my answer, it's fraudulent because they'd be like, oh, you're from here, so you know this and that. Like, well, I actually only lived there for a year. Oh, well, you lived here, so you know, like, you grew up around this and that. You have these character traits. People like want to make assumptions about you when they ask Mm -hmm. you where you're from, and I don't have a good answer.
1: I really don't. Have you uh, heard of the term that's been thrown around a lot, third culture kid? Yeah, it's like you're what is it? You're born in one place. Like, you kind of grew up in another, but, like, your identity or or your kind of family history is a third different place? you kind of identify as that? In a way, you know, it's different. It's different from, like, from you, right? Like, uh, where
0: you – but I did, like, leave the United States when I was seven, Mm. eight, maybe, um, and didn't come back to live until I was, like, 14, right? Mm -hmm. And so by the time you start high school, which is kind of the first – leaping off point of figuring out who you are as a person. Uh, it's really challenging to like not get pop culture references or not have like sort of history in the country where you're expected to grow and define yourself. And I'm sure like for you as well, because again, like you define this and it's not supposed to be about you, but I'm going to make it a little bit about you. Right. Or <laughs> like you're born in Brazil. Right. And so like, then you moved to the UK and there was probably a time where when you moved, they were like, Hey, where are you from? And you're like, Brazil, and that was the right answer. Right. But then there's probably a time where you switched your answer,
1: dude. I, I've I've flip flopped a lot. Yeah. I think uh, right. d- depend not can... not depending on who I talk to, but depending on like the context of how I oh, know goodness. that person. Uh, yeah. Or honestly, right now I just as the quick answer to say I was born and raised in Brazil, grew up in England, yes. Yes. but I've lived in a you know in the states for the past 13 years. But y- you you lived in like Japan, yeah. for a bit. Uh, Germany, yep. right? Yeah. So Germany for almost five years,
0: Japan mm-hmm. for two years. Um, and so flopping even between cultures outside of my own, my parents are both American, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an answer like we can't tell that whole story when someone asks you where you're from. But it's, and so I found that it frustrates people a lot mm-hmm. because when someone asks where you're from and you fr- that question I think first becomes relevant in college, they want an easy answer so that they can quickly make assumptions about you, right? They want you to say New York City. So that they can make a whole bunch of assumptions about you based on where you say you're from. And when you can't give them that easy answer, they can't make assumptions and it confuses people because mm-hmm. they don't know how to act around you. Yeah. In, in some
1: ways. Yeah. I think that, so just for some context, Paul and I met in college, Yeah, uh, Pepperdine. And, and I remember one of the first things I think we really connected on was like that international aspect because totally. this was the first time I ever really lived in the States. And I didn't know anyone. Right. I uh, even though I like sound American and went to American schools, right. there was like yeah. a, a, still a culture shock. I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember? It was like the first week of yeah. freshman year, and we went to like the the cafeteria to get food. Sure. And you know, we we're with the uh, you know our, our sweet mates, you know Dylan mm-hmm. and and all those guys. And I was like, uh, guys, do you know where the cutlery is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. you know it's a, just, just like a simple question right and everyone gave me just like blank stares you yeah. know and, I, and, I and so i asked again and then a third time and and now and i realized like it wasn't registering and i was like oh the the knife and fork silverware the silverware yeah and they're like oh and i just had like kind of micro moments like that did you ever have any of that i know your family's like american but there's probably yeah. things You know that you took from places you've lived that you didn't realize weren't, you know, American or part of some other culture that you you lived in afterwards. Yeah, the way that it tends to manifest is like, I
0: is uh, lapses in my pop culture knowledge, Mm. right? Like everyone seemingly knows the words to the theme song of like the Fresh Prince of Bel Bel Air, right? (laughs) I don't. This is not a show that I watched. Dude, what? Right. Like, cause it just what I didn't watch American TV, right? Mm. Um, or like, I don't know, late '90s, early 2000s, kind of like hip hop stuff. Like, I don't mm. know the words to those songs, and that, it, or they're just references that I won't get. And so it was more so like, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm American, clearly, but spent a very formative gap of time outside of the U.S. And it was much more pronounced when I first moved back to the U S in high school where like, I didn't understand the rules of American football, which Mm. was like very confusing for me. Like, and, and something that you're expected to know just as like, I honestly, I still fully don't understand it. I, you Um, know, I,
1: not that like I really followed along rugby, but most of my friends played rugby and I kind of understood those rules. You know, you you pass the ball back, you know, you're not allowed to pass it forward. And I still don't understand like the American football rules, to be honest,
0: (laughs) which makes a lot of sense for you. For you, it's, Funny because you don't speak with an accent, so you don't look like oh, yeah. either. Like neither do I. So you don't get like the kind of gut reaction of like, "Oh, where are you from?" Right? Because it's clearly not here. Right? Mm-hmm. You do. You do speak American English, and so, and that's just another thing that I think ties back to people want to make assumptions about people. This is like in our DNA. We've evolved to try and make like snap judgments about someone so that we know how to ask around them. And when you haven't had kind of that the normal character arc of like growing up in the same place around the same people until the age of like, call it 18, um, before kind of having to find out who you are going to be as a person. That's very atypical from the norm. And so not being able to make those assumptions, I think it's very frustrating for people and can be frustrating for you as well.
1: Yeah. And I've seen that more and more recently too. I think, uh, I don't know if it's like a result of, quote unquote, lazy, like thinking or like processing, but I think people just easily want to put someone in a box, Mm -hmm. you know? So whether it's like, you know, blue or red or, you know, you're fully like male or female, you know, whatever it is, obviously these days it's kind of, you know, a lot more like mixed, but I think people just want to kind of put you in a box a little bit and then, then, um, have all those assumptions With whatever box that is, and then just kind of like go from there, right? So it's like, so it's like you know, you're American, you know, so therefore you're X Y Z, therefore you know, and so on and so forth. Totally, we yeah, we we've literally evolved to do that quickly, and it it was great as a survival
0: mechanism thousands of years ago, Mm -hmm. and it's not as great today. Because if I told you I was from St. Louis, right, where I was born and where I actually went to high school for a little bit you would make a lot of assumptions about me that you would about someone who's from st louis but if i say i'm from st louis to someone who is actually from st louis right who lived there for a large portion of their upbringing we would have nothing in common mm-hmm. right yeah uh and so that's that's a real challenge and it becomes even more complicated i think when you start to bring like other cultural backgrounds into it
1: do you ever find that challenging uh so for example i i went back to brazil in 2014 yeah. for the first time sure uh, since I moved when I was nine yeah. and I remember going there, uh, I still speak Portuguese, but mm-hmm. honestly it's at a kind of sixth, seventh grade level. Sure. Yeah. Um, it got a little bit better, you know, when I worked at beats and yeah. did more stuff for Brazil, but I remember going back and I just, I didn't feel Brazilian and I remember people would give me looks. Also, I don't look Brazilian no, I'm, uh, so that kind of like messed with me a little bit cuz i i'm very proud of my identities uh whatever those may be and i just remember feeling a little like weird that i kind of wasn't fully accepted there do you ever kind of get that
0: yeah it's um it, it the way that it kind of presents itself is being confused over what you're nostalgic over I think because mm. I think we all often find ourselves in a position where we're nostalgic for our upbringing in the past, whether that's like one thing, whether that's multiple things. And so, you know, I told you this earlier, but I was I was in Europe for several weeks this summer, which is, again, a place where I spent almost five years of like very formative parts of my youth. Right. Mm. And for whatever reason, I was like using a, a like a power adapter. Right. To plug into <laughs> like a UK. Uh, what was it? I guess it was like an EU you know, the two circular plugs instead of the ones that we have. And I remember I remembered in that moment that being the norm. I remembered like the feeling of going back to the States after spending a lot of time outside of the States, seeing a US outlet, a 110 volt outlet, and being like, that's weird. And I remember <laughs> that distinct feeling. Yeah. And that repeats itself, um, very randomly. Um, but but going back and forth between something being the norm is again, you kind of feel yourself drifting a little bit of like, what am I nostalgic for, if not a place, mm-hmm. right? It's tough to be nostalgic for a place that has changed dramatically from when you were there. It's tough to be nostalgic mm-hmm. for something when you are a fundamentally different person than you were when you were there in that moment, the people you were around. And so um, when when everything around uh, around us changes quickly and we don't have that thing to anchor to, a home to anchor to, sometimes a family to anchor to, friends to anchor to, we're kind of forced to
1: figure out who we are as a person a lot faster than kind of the normal. Mm. I think That's a great point. I think, cause, uh, yeah, at least for me, I anchored a lot of my identity to where I was from, you know, I I am Brazilian. I am, especially in the past, you know, few years, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, Chris Kurtz. That's who I am. I don't have to like, you know, put myself as, I am Brazilian, I am this, right. I am that. I'm I'm just who I am. Uh and yeah, I think that that was something that was like messing with me a lot before. Yeah. Uh I want to ask you about you know traveling kind sure. of on the topic of uh you know being international. Um how has kind of traveling to all these countries mm-hmm. changed your perspective on the world? And I know you grew up in different places, but I think sure you know, when you started getting into the aviation industry mm-hmm. in like, you know, 20, what, thirteen, twenty fourteen, 2014, yeah. like, yeah. you know, you okay. got a lot of those benefits to be able to travel. And I remember you were just like, Hey, I'm going to go to like Scotland for a weekend or yeah. how, how did that kind of change your perspective on things? It It's uh I think in a lot of ways it's like
0: building blocks and you're, and you're never going to every place you go gives you a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes from a lot of different places. Like, obviously going to the UK, if we go from the US to the UK, yes, there are differences. And that's going to put a building block kind of on how we view the world. And if you go to sub-Saharan Africa, I know it's a place you and I have both spent some time. And like the first time you go and see kind of just the massive disparity in how the average person lives, and then put that in the context of this is how the average person on this planet lives, Mm. you add like 10 building blocks to that worldview it really rattles it right it really shakes things up and puts your life in perspective even when you're back home uh and and for me it was kind of a mix of things it was enablement i was able to travel a lot for a low cost which and i kind of went wild with it um at the time (laughs) i wasn't really happy where i was living and so i I wanted to like get out and see things uh and then it becomes when wanderlust kind of veers into addiction territory Mm. um that that can be kind of a mixed bag it can be easy to detach from friends it can be easy to detach from your foundation and just kind of be in this steady um this steady state of transition of like being in physically a different place seeing different things reacting differently eating different foods talking to different people uh and and in a way you can kind of become unanchored so it was a lot it was and is a lot of fun but i found that i have to taper it off a little bit because i want to sometimes for the first time in a long time, anchor myself to something because it's not something I was able to do apart from my family, like as
1: a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think especially these days with like Instagram, you see everyone, you know, traveling and touting that, you know, digital nomad lifestyle and such. And it it looks incredibly appealing. And I think for a lot of people it it works and it is, but I think that's a great point to really, have you know some type of like community or foundation or like home that you can go back to uh even if it's like you know I I go back to the UK once a year to see my family and for me that's a great kind of recharging point uh just to remember you know where I'm from and to kind of reconnect with my roots a little bit Mm -hmm. um but at the same time you know you kind of I I love traveling as well and injecting that so I think finding that balance is like really important do you remember I'm just curious do you remember when you moved
0: to the UK from Brazil right I imagine there was a period of several years where when if people asked where you were from and it's a less common question when you're in elementary school or middle school high school whatever your answer was Brazil you're born in Brazil you had you grew up in Brazil for nine years Um, was there a time prior to you coming to the US for school when you switched that answer to "I'm from
1: here," I'm from London. Uh, I think so. Yeah, I I don't remember exactly when that, that was, but that's a and yeah, I th- probably yeah, I would say after I was in the UK for yeah a while, I would yeah. say because also my dad's British, right, and my mom's Brazilian, so I've always kind of identified as both, even though I only lived uh in brazil you know in my early childhood yeah. years but uh yeah i think once i lived in the uk probably for like five or six years i started identifying more as british sure and you know what's weird so in brazil i actually had a british accent because yeah, i I, I spoke uh portuguese with a lot of my friends but i went to an american school so all the right. lessons were in english most of the, the teachers were american sure Uh, but the person I spoke English with the most was my dad. And he's he's like, incredibly, he's like, so I'm Graham. Uh, listen, Chris, your dad's the most British man I've ever met. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's, I did watch a lot of like Americanized like TV and such like the Fresh Prince, but yeah, most of the interactions I had, I actually remember very specifically, uh, there's one day in school, uh, I couldn't say, uh, purple, I would say purple, And the kids were like, say purple. And I was like, yeah, I'm saying it. It's purple. And I remember that very specifically. And it's fun looking back at that now because it's like my accent like completely changed. Uh, And then, yeah, ironically in the UK, I was surrounded a lot more by American kids. And then I think my accent kind of started to change. So by the time I came to the US, uh, yeah, I was a lot more Americanized. (laughs) Yeah. So and then in the U.S., uh, yeah, I would just say I'm from like Brazil and England, and yeah, even though your accent tells neither, which yeah, uh, I don't yeah, I don't know. It's not good or bad. It's just most
0: people are like again, you're pegged with that question. Yeah, like wait a minute, where are you from? because you don't sound like we sound, but you do speak American English. It's interesting, right? But but my point was in that question was like, that's a moment, right? And it would be fun to go back and find where it was, but there was a moment where you switched from likely responding, I'm from Brazil, to I'm from here, I'm from the UK, right? I'm from yeah. London. Um, and that doesn't happen for most people. I'm not saying our situation is like super atypical, right? There are people like us who've lived in many places growing up, but it, it is outside of that normal arc of... Again, and both my parents are like this. You grew up in the same place for, call it, 18 years. And then only when you maybe take that step into adulthood, assuming you move away, you go to college, you get a job somewhere else outside of where you're from, Mm -hmm. that you're finally confronted with um, frequent interactions with people who are not from where you're from. Mm -hmm. And that's what flips it back on you to find out who, in fact, you are.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Because again, people ask where you're from to try and make broad generalizations about you. And it holds more or less true probably for the first 18 years of your life. And I think that's why they say like, oh, whatever, college is so formative or your first job is so formative mm-hmm. or at whatever age, the first time you step away from home, home again, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. is formative because you're kind of confronted with, okay, wait, who am I? Like people are making these generalizations about me. Do I fit them? Maybe I do, maybe I don't. But you still have that anchor to fall back on and that comfort zone that's been there for such a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. And I think when you don't have that, we get insecure about it, sure. like not having a place that we're from, mm-hmm. and so we're almost like pressured to find that out at an earlier age. Yeah, and that's not necessarily better or worse. I don't think it can be super confusing.
1: Yeah, um, it's confusing. Even yeah. now, yeah, you know, I've lived in the U.S. the longest, you know, <laughs> thirteen years, but right. I'm still not, you know, American. Uh, but I probably identify, you know, more as American than probably Brazilian and British, which is weird, oh, right? Very. Um, so. Yeah, and I'm sure it's sure. like, you know, somewhat similar to you. Yeah. Um I do wanna shift gears a little bit sure. and uh and talk about, you know, you getting into the aviation yeah. industry and yeah. uh, you know, still along the same lines of like traveling and sure. such. I, I assume you kind of th- that interest sparked because you love to travel and you wanted to explore. Uh That's how funny. did how did you <laughs> <South> <laughs> how, how did you even get your foot in the door to You know, work at American Airlines and and Delta.
0: Yeah. uh, I mean, my dad was a pilot, right, my Mm. whole life. And so, like, airplanes have just always been part of the equation. Uh, I think a lot of people end up pursuing um, an industry similar to that of their parents for a lot of reasons. Like, A, you grow up with that being kind of like the table talk, Mm. right? Like dinner table conversation. Oh, how was work today? Like the quintessential first question at family dinner. How was work today? And, you know, my dad was a pilot, so you talk about airplanes. Or an airplane goes overhead, he's looking up, I'm looking up, right? Um, And and then spending so much time on airplanes as a kid, I think certainly developed that interest to where I was fairly certain, uh, even kind of before secondary school, that like whatever it takes to spend a lot of time on airplanes, I want to do it, but knowing that I don't want to fly them. (laughs) That was like the first disqualifier. I was like, I don't want to fly it. I just want to find a job where I am spending a lot of time on an airplane. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I... I went through kind of maybe the stereotypical, like what's the best way to get a job at an airline? And so I went through the finance track, like the international business finance track. And sure enough, then just like applied to all the aviation jobs and eventually uh, American Bit, um, which ended up being kind of the the first job out of school. Uh, And that's all I've done since, which sometimes I wonder whether that's a good thing or not. But as I think you and I have mentioned before, like because that's my hobby, And it's also very much in line with my profession. I, I, um, at the end of the day, both those things are satisfied. Like the professional checkbox is satisfied. I've got a job, it pays the bills. I like to think I'm okay at it. Um, and oh, by the way, I talked about airplanes all day, which is what I would have done anyway, if I, if I didn't have to work. And so with the, with both of those boxes checked by like call at 5, 6 PM every day, then I can spend the rest of the time, um, exploring other hobbies what you know like going out to eat hanging out with friends um not having to feel as if i need to express my hobby further right which is nice
1: yeah I think. one thing i love about hanging out with you uh especially out here in la and where we're like on a beach or something we'll see an airplane sure. go by and you know the exactly the air path you the know best. like you know where they're going and like oh wow they're like uh you know flying over at this time you know it's like a little a little bit more delayed than usual or whatever it is yeah can you give me any like or or the listeners out there any unique insights that you've kind of like learned like like how do you know all of that or or, and especially like just by looking at like the airplanes
0: yeah it's less it's not not complicated
1: but (laughs) it's
0: generalizations can often be true right and usually, you you know, you look up and you see like a foreign flag carrier, so like Emirates, right? Well, if it's Emirates flight, it's coming in from Dubai, every single time, all the time. If you see mm. an Emirates plane landing, it is either going to or coming back from Dubai, mm-hmm. with very very few exceptions, right? And the same goes for every major like international carrier. Mm. If you see a Japan Airlines flight. It is coming to or from the U.S. from one of two airports in Tokyo. Yeah, there, there's two others. But like, so again, generalizations can often hold true. And from there, you can kind of once you can identify an aircraft type, um, you can kind of and and time of day because you know there are blocks of flights. So flights arrive from Europe around the same time every day, within a couple of hours for the most part. Uh, you can kind of back into it from th- from there. It's just repetition. Like I mean, as part of my job for almost 10 years, like looking at the daily, weekly, monthly, annual schedules of most aircraft in the country was part of the job. Mm -hmm. And so like anyone, I mean, I don't know, an electrician can probably look at like a, a whatever those things are called, like an electric post and be like, oh yeah, that was probably roughly installed between 1948 and 1969. (laughs) And it's going to need to be refreshed here. And it's probably maintenance every uh, you know, a couple of months, mm-hmm. um, because repetition just really like drives that home. Airplanes sure. is just a cool one because I think most people like, even if they don't like to travel themselves, everyone likes the thought of going somewhere else.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a one of the most incredible inventions ever. The way I've I've heard you describe it sometimes is like you're in this like tin box in the sky Your that metal just tube. flies. But yeah, you the metal tube. That's right.
0: And, and this is not like an original bit, but you know, when you especially when you say you work for an airline, people feel compelled to tell you about their most recent horrifying airline experience where Mm. their bag was lost or where they were delayed 20 minutes. And, And again, this is not like my own invention, but people be like, and then we had to sit on the tarmac before takeoff for 20 minutes. And you're like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like then what happened? What happened after that? Were you safely rocketed through the air at 500 miles an hour in a magic tube where you were given food, internet, and television, and five hours later, you landed in New York City, something that would have taken our species six months, 150 years ago? Like, that's insane. It is completely insane.
1: I think about that a lot. Like, I think just the advancement of technology and how people not take it for granted, but they're so used to like a certain level of it. You know, I think about that with our phones and such all the time. It's not a phone. Like we're literally shooting this podcast, like on a video on a phone right now. It's what I do all my work on. Like it's, it's just incredible, but people still get mad if like your, you know, Chrome browser doesn't load (laughs) in like 3.6 seconds. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a similar thing. Uh, you know, I get it. So this might ruffle some feathers, but something I think about, you know, a lot with aviation Mm -hmm. is, you know, the emissions and it's, you know, one of the biggest offenders I would say. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, climate change, I feel like is, is a real thing. And what's kind of your take on that? What you said (laughs) is true. Like air travel is among the more polluting
0: things out there. No doubt about it. I think at one point, probably pre-COVID, one of the major U.S. airlines, and there are like, what, there are four major ones, but just one of them consumed something like 1% of annual petroleum in the United States, Mm. or in the world, sorry. So like Mm. 1% of fuel consumption in the world on an annual basis was done by one of the four major U.S. airlines. And so you're right, the, don't let anyone tell you otherwise, the business model is lighting jet fuel on fire and rocketing a metal tube through the sky. And it is polluting and it's getting more efficient on a per passenger per mile basis. It is very comparable to an automobile, right? I think possibly even more efficient depending on the aircraft. Mm-hmm. The newer aircraft, without a doubt, on a per passenger per mile basis is more efficient than your average combustion engine, no doubt, right? But, but, right, it is absolutely true that to lower your personal carbon footprint, you should fly less in the same way that you should drive less, in the same way that you should eat less meat, in the same way that you should um, not live in a single family home with a yard, right? Like there are all these things, but it's so easy to blame transportation because it's so visible to everyone all the time. And especially seeing, I, I do think there's something about like, seeing and hearing a loud engine hanging off an aircraft that you just know fuel's being burned from or at least a contrail across the sky right Mm -hmm. so you're like oh my god burning fossil fuel in the (laughs) sky absolutely it leaves a carbon footprint um and you should travel less if that is what you feel compelled to do in order to lower your personal carbon footprint it's a fact Mm -hmm. and
1: carbon offsets and all this stuff is kind of fluff um but like find me the alternative Right. That was my next question. Like, have you seen any like emerging, emerging like companies or technology? Because it's not like you can just take like a, a battery pack or that's an electric right. car and then, you know, put some that's right, green jets on it. Correct. You cannot do to airplanes, at least the type
0: of airplanes that we use to move 100 to 300 people. Uh, long distances. You cannot do to an aircraft of that size uh, what you can do with an automobile. And it's a simple weight to power ratio, right? An electric car is so much heavier than a standard combustion car because you've got all those batteries on there. But it's fine because you're on wheels and you're moving along the ground, right? You cannot pack an airplane full of batteries because it won't fly and weight is everything, right? And so truly, like, look, I get it, but like, find me the alternative. And they're out there. There's a lot of technology that's going behind electric aircraft, but they're slower and there is not a tolerance for it taking 10 hours instead of five
1: hours. Yeah. People are complaining about being on the tarmac for 20 minutes. Like imagine, do, do you think there's something with underground, like, you know, Hyperloop or being able to dig tunnels and kind of get around that way?
0: There's no doubt that for shorter distances, there are better options than air travel. Uh, and we're not, the U.S. is particularly guilty of this. We don't have the rail network that like a Europe does or that Asia increasingly does. Um, but like, look, should people be flying between L.A. and San Francisco, L.A. and San Diego, L.A. and Vegas, um, the Texas Triangle, right? Austin, Houston, Dallas. Probably not. There's a better way to do it. Mm-hmm. There is. A high speed rail would work great as it does in Europe as it Definitely does in Asia, right? Um, but it's just not a reality in this country, unfortunately, for a whole lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where you would address this um, first because mm-hmm. you tackle those short routes uh, because you you put every time a, a plane flies from point A to point B, it's called, at least for the purposes of the engine, a cycle. You're putting a cycle on that engine. You spool up the engine, you take off, you fly, you land. Mm-hmm. And you burn a lot of fuel just in the takeoff phase that the shorter flights are less efficient. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so that's where you would tackle it. I'm all for it. Again, I love flying, but high speed rail sounds great. We're just incompetent as a country. It would seem to get that
1: done. Yeah. Where it needs to be. Done. Yeah. It's not an easy, easy solution, I think. And people like to, you know, point fingers and, uh, yeah, it's tough. Mm-hmm. So I, a big part of this podcast is talking about, you know, self, Improvement self-development. Yeah. So I kind of want to talk about that a little yeah, bit as it sure. pertains to you. Of course. Uh, you know, obviously moving around, uh, you know, can be tough. Mm-hmm. I think with making new friends each time you move. Brutal. Uh, you maybe kind of reinventing yourself in some ways or thinking through your I- identity. Yeah. Uh, as we've talked about earlier. Tell me a little bit about that. Like yeah. how, how did you kind of... I've seen you, you know, grow like a lot yeah. these past you know, ten time. plus years. Uh, um, yeah, how like oh, fourteen wow, years, something like that. Oh, that makes me nervous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. I think from you know childhood and how you've kind of grown yeah. and become like the the most authentic version of yourself. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is from a young age. Of,
0: I've a I've always been very comfortable being alone. I've always been very comfortable being by myself. Mm. And that wasn't necessarily a necessity. I have like an amazing family unit. I have my, like my sister and my parents, and we've always been like this really great unit that's traveled well together and been there for one another when we moved to a new place or a new country or what have you. And that's obviously very shaping. But even within that family unit, I've always been super independent. And some of that was just like out of necessity. Mm. Like when you're always the new kid, you spend a lot of time alone. But I've always been okay being alone. And I think in in the same sort of thread that we alluded to earlier, like when everything around you is changing all the time, the house that you live in, the room within the house that you live in, like what people I th- think a lot about their childhood room, and like I have like 10 rooms, right, to think back on that I didn't spend that much time in. Um, and when so much around you is changing, you really quickly have to figure out who you are. Uh, because I have seen, especially, and I'm a military kid, and there, again, that's not particularly unique. There are a lot of military kids who move a lot. Um, but people can get lost pretty quick and go down some, some not so great paths when you don't have like a steady anchor of friends say, or some people have way more challenging family lives than I've had. Right. Um, but I think I just kind of had to figure out who I was, what I liked, what I was okay with. Often the things that you're kind of confronted with in that sort of college phase, when you're away from your home and your friends, I just had to kind of figure it out at a younger age because so much around me was changing. Um, and then build upon that. I've certainly changed a lot over the years. I don't think I've had any like dramatic transformations over the years. I don't think because I think I had to kind of iron that out when I was pretty young mm. and then kind of build upon it instead of, you know, some people, again, go to school or go into the professional world or maybe have one move and they kind of treat like are a whole new person. Mm-hmm. I don't think if you asked my family or my very close friends, like yourself included. Um, but even those that predate school, like, Oh, is Paul a dramatically different person than he was in high school or even before high school. And I don't think so. Cause I think I just had to figure it out early and kind of build upon that instead of reinventing myself every time, which would have been exhausting. Mm-hmm. And it makes for, I'm good at adapting as a result of that cultures, environments, whatever. Um, but it makes it such that like some moves were a lot harder than others because if you don't totally reinvent yourself and adapt to the surrounding, like I lived in rural Alabama and rural Oklahoma at a very young age. Mm. And then I lived in Tokyo, right? Mm-hmm. Like dramatically different places. You can't totally reinvent yourself to accommodate things that are so wildly different. And so as a result, there are some places that just didn't fit in super well. And that's okay because I was okay being alone. Um, and in many ways still
1: am today. I think that's like such an important insight slash lesson is just like really being comfortable being by yourself yeah. alone. And I know it sounds like a little woo woo, but just kind of like finding the answers within because so there's so many pressures of like society that you have to be this way. You have to adapt to this culture mm-hmm. or these things and really just like knowing yourself and being with yourself and being accepting of yourself and loving yourself. That's like the most important thing. And from there you can go and kind of explore other facets of life and environments and like societies. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like you were able to kind of achieve a large sense of that in early age. So when you kind of went into these different places uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't really like rock you. You know, I think for, for a lot of people, they, you know, it's it's human nature. You want to adapt to your environment. Uh, you, you want to, you know, be a part of it. Community is so important. You want to, you want to be accepted, you know, as as a human. And you know, we're tribal
2: yeah. animals yeah.
1: in a lot of ways, right? right? But it's almost like the opposites also very important as well to really be grounded, like in yourself. Yeah. And I think I think so. That. And and again, with a lot of help,
0: right? Mm. Like again, my my. The stability that I've had my entire life and the like unyielding support that I've had from my immediate family and friends my whole life uh, allowed me to do that. If I was coming home to like a troubled family or if I was like being put in positions of as a consequence of neglect or what have you like, man, it would have been impossible to be as comfortable being alone. Because I can be comfortable being alone because I know there's this loving support net that has sat below me my entire life and still does to this day. And now it's even stronger because it's my family and it's now my longstanding friends, um, w- which are sort of like the longest friendships I've had for the most part with like a few exceptions or like you and, and a lot of the friends from school. But all that is made possible, I think, by that net that sits, that sat underneath me and still does for my whole life for my family, mm. which is, which was big. I love that. It's big. Yeah.
1: So... You've recently accepted and started a job at Salesforce. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, you know, because it's definitely a little bit different from the aviation industry, but you've taken a lot of that with you in this new role. Yeah. So tell me about that transition.
0: Yeah. I mean, for like the background, I worked for 200 year old airlines (laughs) among the older industries, you know, out there, really bureaucratic, very traditional. Like I was thinking about this the other day, because now I have like a sort of a not a totally flexible work environment, but like it's more set your own schedule as was common with tech companies. And I was thinking how in like my first job out of school, like which was at a a major airline, I I was so nervous about asking my boss if I could leave at 4.30 to catch a flight on Friday. (laughs) I was so nervous. And he like actually had to noodle over it for a while. Like, oh, I guess that, yeah, I guess, but like, let's not make this a reoccurring thing. Mm -hmm. And looking, and that was not that long ago. Mm -hmm. That was 10 years ago, roughly. Um, Wow. (laughs) <laughs> and that wasn't great to say but like now that is comical right and th- and that's that's telling as to how different tech is from traditionally i was
1: going to say the environment has changed a lot
0: totally covid's a big part of that obviously sure. but even before covid you know Salesforce, which a 20 year old ish um tech company has always kind of put that as as a core value like the flexibility and trust in in their people Um, And I don't want this to sound like a Salesforce or tech commercial, but like um, it is night and day in a lot of ways. That's not to say there aren't very smart people in a lot of these industries, but it's just structural, right? Like um, all companies that go from like the startup to growth phase have to add layers of bureaucracy. We've seen this even within tech, right? And when you compound that over a hundred years, multiple decades, things just get a little stiff. And it'll be really interesting to see what 50-year-old tech companies look like. Because we don't know. Mm-hmm. We don't know what a 50-year-old tech company is going to look and act like today. Mm-hmm. We have no idea. Or what the next iteration of a company is going to look like in like whatever this third wave is. Mm-hmm. right? Um, kind of like pre-internet, post-internet, whatever comes next. But it was a big transition. Fortunately, I still work very closely with airlines. And that kind of goes back to like hobbies versus profession, where... If I were in the job that I'm in now, which is pretty traditional tech sales, but not working with airlines, transportation, travel, that sort of thing, that'd be tough Mm -hmm. because it'd feel more just like this is a job versus this is just a
1: transactional way of expressing my hobby. Right. Uh, It's a big change though. Can you explain, I know this is a very simple question, but what Salesforce does exactly? Because I honestly actually didn't know until like a few years ago. Sure. Uh, and I knew it was, you know, a, you know, growing company, and it was huge. And I heard a lot about it within the tech industry, but kind of quite point out right. what exactly yeah. it is that they do. Can you just briefly explain? Yeah,
0: I'll admit to having like Wikipedia a lot of stuff lead <laughs> up to to doing this job. Um, and so Salesforce does a lot of things now, um, but the bread and butter, which is um, Sales Cloud, kind of like a a CRM platform, which is a business keeping track. Of their customers, right? Um, in the cloud, which again looks like kind of the inventor in some ways of like cloud, uh, the facets of cloud computing today. Um, and so being able to keep a tabs and having the history of your customer base and the, the relationships that you have on a B2B or B2C basis, um, and being able to extract decision making from that knowledge from the amount of data that you can get from a customer being a customer over a period of time. And now there's a lot of different things. I mean, if you've been, there's Marketing Cloud, which does email marketing. There's, um, you know, Experience Cloud, which can do um, transactional interfaces. They own Slack, which is kind of like, you know, corporate communications tool with um, increasing popularity. So it's a lot of different stuff, but the way to think of it is how businesses engage with their customers um, all, on a on a cloud driven platform at first. That still probably didn't answer your question.
1: No, no, it did. Yeah. Okay. and I want to talk about CRMs a bit more because yeah. uh, you know, when I was at Beats, you know we were still very much a startup and it grew so quickly. And I remember, you know, sales were like exponentially growing. We were mm-hmm. good at marketing, but and we felt like we knew our customer. And I think we did, but I remember one of the biggest projects that we were doing was we need to implement a CRM system. Sure. And do we build it from the ground up do we you know and we quite didn't know how to tackle it yeah you know and also a lot of you know people on our team didn't understand the benefits of it sure like what do you mean we know our cut like why do we have to track them you know can't we just like send them emails and or surveys and engage with them but i think uh like you, you were saying it's not just tracking the customers, but learning, you know, extracting that data and like learning how they interact with your brand and perhaps how that changes over time. Also segmenting out the different customer profiles to be able to, Mm you know, speak to them differently. But obviously if a company this big now has grown into like this, you know, behemoth and that was their bread and butter, that Mm -hmm. it's obviously a significant thing that companies need. Can you talk about like that need a little bit? And I know you know, so you do this, you know, primarily I think for for the aviation industry now. Yeah. But maybe you give even a couple examples of like how other like companies or businesses have benefited from implementing systems like this. Yeah, it's um, you know, to your point, before this before
0: CRM kind of existed more broadly as kind of a off the shelf product where everyone was kind of doing their own thing in a lot of ways. Uh if you don't, if you can't spot trends within your customer base, then how are you going to get ahead of what your customer wants, mm. right? Because you so know, you mean like identifying patterns almost, totally, and then trying to totally, mm. and, and then and then trying to get ahead of the curve from there, uh, because if you can't isolate those trends, and, and like I'll even give some um, whatever some aviation related examples, but the entire customer journey you kind of have to be aware of what transactions are taking place based on the type of customer you have. Um, And so whether it's when a customer books a ticket and how they book a ticket these days, right? Do they just go on Google flights and pick the cheapest option? That's a very different traveler type than someone who goes straight to Southwest.com, right? Um, Or someone who uh, uses a, a corporate travel agency right A TMC a travel management company to book their travel for them and there are so many different transactional channels up front there and that's just the first stage mm-hmm. right and it's add-ons and baggage fees and all these different parts of the journey their meal preference uh, whether they're a frequent flyer and what that means what does it mean if you have status with it with the airline how much more revenue do you bring in um, how do you want to be marketed to and then on top of that What type of content is most relevant right are you frequently going back and forth between la new york well then you don't care that there's a fire sale to miami right and so you can't just blast things out anymore you have to segment your customer base in a way where you know um where the revenue is coming from in each of those pieces of the of the customer pie to then adapt your marketing strategy get ahead of the technology that you know different slices of the customer base want right and drive innovation that way um and then being able to know when someone, the way it kind of culminates with an airline, because when we think of airlines, we think of like, oh my God, I'm going to have to call them and I'm going to be on the phone for two hours and I'm going to have to give them my name. And like, this isn't unique to aviation, but we've all been there, right? You're just dreading like, I'm going to have to spell my last name to this person on the phone. And it's going to be so annoying and I'm going to get it wrong. And then they're going to ask for my security pin, which I don't know, right? The ideal is you pick up the phone or your phone for a for a chat engagement, Right? Or send an email and the recipient of that knows who you are, what potential hardship you may have endured recently that might need to be addressed, mm. whether you have an outstanding reservation right now that might need to be changed, right? and to be able to quickly tee all these things up to the person that you're going to be speaking with. And oh, by the way, if you're calling someone in the reservations office, they should also know that you sent an email yesterday and you tried to get through the chat bot 30 minutes ago. Right? You have to have that consolidated. And one of the ways that I've seen this culminate in a pretty cool way is some airlines have started bringing this all together in kind of the iPad that flight attendants have on board. And so you'll kind of, you'll see a flight attendant, and I've seen this firsthand, come up to a passenger and be like, "Um, Mr. Smith, thank you so much for flying with our airline. I am so sorry about the delay you experienced last week. We're going to try and make that up for you today with an early arrival. Um, And just so you know, you're two segments away from qualifying for Diamond Medallion, uh, and so, look forward to that here um next week when you're flying to Amsterdam, right? And sometimes people are like, "That's creepy, right? <laughs> That's weird that you know all that, but overwhelmingly, I see not only a positive reaction from that customer, but the people around that customer like, "Whoa, that was cool, you know, like how they know all that stuff
1: yeah, I, I think especially for much you know larger companies, mm-hmm. people feel like they're a little you know detached and uh, Just a customer. They think, yeah, you know, there's these massive call centers, and they don't, you know, care about you, and yeah, you're just another number. So I think right. even ha- having any part of like that intentional, like personal element, where it's like, hey, we have the notes here. We understand, you know, you're empathetic. We have, we understand your concern, you know, mm-hmm. if-, if there is an issue, and essentially addressing that upfront totally. and being able to connect with the customer because. Customers are the lifeblood of your business, and if you're not taking care of them, if you're not addressing these situations, um, and yeah, you know, leveraging these data points to be able to, you know, serve them what they really need, Mm -hmm. then, you know, that starts becoming an issue.
2: Totally.
1: I want to talk about the sales side of it a little bit. Mm -hmm. I I think of like, you know, up in the air where, when was that? When did that come out? Like 2005 or something like like that? I could be off, but yeah. Uh, so obviously the world's changed a lot since then, but I think it's still true where there's that struggle of, you know, doing sales or just even like customer service, like in person, uh, or just, you know, even B2B, uh, how do you approach that now with like this job? Are you, and I remember, I think when you were at American and Delta, you would often fly to like meet customers and, you know, connect with them. Is, is that still the case? At Salesforce? Yeah, it's,
0: it's still a component of it. It's it's lesser than it was obviously pre-COVID. Um, and then with airlines, I think it's more frequent because you kind of have to show the customer the product and then mm-hmm. that you also partake in the product. So you travel to see them more. Whereas in, in the tech space, it can be done a lot more remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've been spoiled in some ways to where I don't even feel like I have a great answer to kind of the how you do it question because at the end of the day, this is also my hobby Air travel is very much my hobby. Like if someone tells me they go on vacation, they're like, oh, I went to Tahiti. I'm like, cool. Who did you fly? How was the flight? And they're like, yeah, well, I don't know. But the sharks, I'm like, I don't care about the sharks. I want, <laughs> I, care. I want to know how the flight was. I want to know who you flew. I yeah. want to know how the food was. I want to know how the airport experience was. Yeah. That's what I care about because my hobby. And and you can't, you can't fake that, especially when you're passionate about something as stupid as sitting in a metal tube for hours mm-hmm. like that. That is not, you can't fake passion for something that so many people find miserable, right? That
1: is that is such a great point, especially for sales. Like but also like so much of your job and even like life is is sales. You know, I think a lot of people think sales is like trying to convince someone else to, you know, buy something from me, buy car the pen, sell man, me this pen. Yeah, you. exactly. They think of like the used car salesman like sleazeball, but right. it's really, you know, showcasing an offer that will you know benefit both parties and just offering it in a way that might connect with them. And, you know, there's so many ways to do that without, you know, being quote unquote like sleazy or You've forcing that into in So, it, so yeah, believing in it and because you believe in it and understand it well, you know, you're, you're empathetic towards your customer. So you're able to understand their struggle and how they would, you know, benefit from that product or service Mm -hmm. or deal or whatever it is. So, um, so yeah, you, you pointing that out that you yourself like love it and you've lived in, understand like, you know, the nuances, uh, of the, you know, the potential problems that the customers need solving. And I think that's like such an important, you know, and a key component to being able to connect. Uh, with others in business and and yeah. sales, it's not a trick, right? Like yeah. there, there's no
0: trickery involved there,
1: and, and it applies.
0: You know, in my case, it's passion for sitting on an airplane. But I think we've all been in a, in a position where we hear someone talk about with like such passion and maybe intricate detail about something that we just don't care about at all. Mm-hmm. But even in that situation, like it's hard not to smile or even laugh. Totally, We're like, yes. Oh my god, this person cares so much about candles that I just love that. I love and I don't care about candles at all and I don't know anything about candles and I frankly don't even really have a desire to know more about candles but it is so inspiring to hear someone who is so passionate about something that you might not even be passionate about because that's contagious. Like passion in all forms is contagious for better or for worse Um, and that in particular is just like when someone really loves something man and you
1: know they're not faking it that's so cool. I it's totally so agree, cool. and also makes you very curious about what, like, why are they so passionate about right. candles? Yeah. and you like, ask what them, and they're, I know? and they're like, "Do you understand like how the wax is made and like how <laughs> yeah. the fire burns and like the yeah. wick and it does this?" And yeah. you're like, "Oh shit, I never thought about right. it that way before." Right, and that's really special. It is. Do you do you know uh, Francis? I don't know. I forgot his last name starts with the B on Instagram. He's this British so. uh kid. Oh, is the train guy? Yes. yes. He's absolutely obsessed with trains. Yes. And I and it's so interesting because I see other people follow his account. and there's like random celebrities like Jay Cole and yeah. who you'd never like think, but right. he is just such a passionate like train spotter. Right. Like he literally just like gets up at like three in the morning sometimes and goes to like a station to see a very specific, you know, type of train. That yeah, maybe there's only like one of you know three left or something. Yeah. And I don't care about trains like at all. No. But he makes me want to care about That's trains.
0: Right. I mean, what's the most viral thing on the internet right now? It's a little kid talking about
1: corn <laughs> yeah. and
0: how much he loves corn. <laughs> yes. Right? And it's because passion is one of the most contagious things that we encounter, like as a species.
1: Especially when we know it's authentic. Especially from kids too, because they come from such an authentic place. Like they, yes. you know, they're kind of newer in this world. And as you grow older, I would say, you know, especially you start getting into your teenage years, sure. you're kind of told, like, no, 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 you need to kind of act like this or yeah. be polite in this way Tone or like, down. don't do that. And then that's when all the rules and, you know, start piling on. But I think when you're, you're a kid, you're so like... It's beginner's mind. Yeah, yeah, you're in awe of the world and you want to explore and you get so excited about it. And I think there's a lot to like take away from that. Because um, you can feel like the kid's passion for, you know, corn right. or whatever a it kid is. kid
0: says... I mean, how often does a kid below the age of 10 say like, this is the best day of my life? Yeah. And they mean it. And in that moment, they mean it. When was the last time you said this is the best day of my life? And mean it right? It might happen a few more times in our lifetime.
1: And the Over truth is time. also it's typically for such simple things like they're like you know and they say that and you're like oh so what did you do? And they're like I just ran around this like field <laughs> and did, played yeah. soccer and then my buddy Charlie like found this bug. Right. And you know if, if me and you have that conversation be like yeah okay you know m- maybe. Yeah. But I think like even just like the simple things in life yeah. they understand that and I don't know. I, I hear it often, especially from very smart people I know and successful people, they, they say like never lose your childlike wonder, you know, yeah. and I think there's, yeah, a, a lot of society tells you, no, 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 you need to grow up, you need to be an adult. And when you're right. a kid, all you want to do is be an adult. And then when you're an adult, all you want to do is kind of be a kid again.
0: And I wonder if it's, they're, they're, and I don't think this is unique to the US or kind of contemporary society, but as we grow older, being content I think is seen as a bad thing or mm. lazy right and it shouldn't be and because i i'm often so envious of how like content kids are mm. i think that's part of it. they have passion they have authentic passion they have that beginner's mind like we talked about but like to say this is the best day ever i couldn't be happier there's nothing that exudes being con- content more than that I'm so envious of it mm-hmm. because as we grow older, it's more uncommon because just because we think about all this stuff in the world and everything that's going on in the news, but we should be content more often we should let ourselves be content.
1: I a hundred percent agree. Do you think a lot of it is because we're just given so much information yes. that we're not even like seeking, right? Whether it's like, yeah. you know, advertisements everywhere or we're on our phone right. and you know, people are telling you this is happening in the world that's happening yeah and yeah i remember here uh someone said this recently where it's like just think about even like you know 50 100 years ago we were given like a fraction of the information that we get because you would kind of walk like think about i don't know 20s or 30s you're like walking by like a newsstand and you see a headline and it's like oh wow like that's happening crazy and then that that's like the talk of the day or it's like the weather now it's like you have 30 of those a day like there's a bombing here and there's that there um and i think an important thing i always try and remind myself of is in a lot of ways a lot of those things have kind of always happened around us but we just weren't given that information and now because of the internet and because of the algorithms of like social media and how news is like Mm -hmm. served to you it's not only like hey here's all these like really negative things because negative things get more clicks and more clicks, you know, getting it's more money from the advertisers. Right. Uh, so I think just like being in this world where it's like overwhelmingly, you know, given all this stuff and not only that on top of that, it's like, Hey, you need to feel this way too. Oh, hey, there's a bombing there? there. Like, why haven't you donated? Oh, cause you don't care while wow, you're a shitty person, you know? And then it just goes on and on and on. And then you're just like crippled with all this. Like, oh, I have to care about everything. And yeah, you know, and have to take action, and you don't even know where to start, and it's just—it's overwhelming, man. And we didn't have that as as kids, you know.
0: No, we're, and I'm I'm sometimes reluctant to use the word like we're overinformed because a I like being overinformed. I like knowing more than less. That's why I go on like Wikipedia bin- binges, like a lot of us do. Mm-hmm. I think, but yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to like feel compelled to have an educated opinion on everything that comes up from so many different sources. And, and I think for the exact reason that you mentioned, like a lot of people look back on pre-internet days, whether it's the fifties for our parents, whether it's the eighties for kind of the generation that came right above us, because they just weren't as, um, constantly stimulated like we are. Right. Right. They could sit down and focus on something in a way that we're now really bad at because we just have so much coming at us from so many different sources. Yeah. It's tough. yeah.
1: I'm not even surprised that, you know, meditation and, and, you know, the talk of mental health now is like so big, you know, it's mm-hmm. just like, Hey, <laughs> it's, hey man. I'm kind of laughing man. a little bit. Cause it's like, down, Hey Paul, man. just like sit down for 10 minutes. I was talking <laughs> yeah. uh, to someone the other day about this, you know, they're asking me about meditation mm-hmm. and I was like, honestly, I just sit down for like 10, 20 minutes And I do my best not to think about anything at all, except maybe just like my breathing, my breath. And even just those 20 minutes like help me feel good afterwards because it just calms my mind down. I'm not, you know, being stimulated. You're content. And, and yeah. And I remember, you know, her saying to me, you know, I tried that and I just, I I couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, I got bored. Like my, my mind, you know, went to a thousand places for like 20 minutes, like That's like a fraction of your day. So, I mean, what does that say about how our minds are programmed now and like all the things that we're being like served? So it sounds so simple, but I think if you're just training your mind to be still for a little bit, you'll you'll find clarity, you'll like be happier, you'll be more at peace. And I don't think it's something that, you know, perhaps you can do immediately, especially if you're kind of glued to your phone and TV and such, but... You know, like any habit, do it for 30 days or so. I guarantee mm-hmm. anyone if they just stood still yeah. a little bit more. And then also going back to our point of just like, you know, looking at yourself, you know, finding yourself internally mm-hmm. and being by yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're both somewhat introverts. That's why the, me doing this podcast is like still very weird to me, but yeah. I, I do enjoy it. Uh But I think you're pretty similar, right? Where Yeah, I
0: think, I, and I think it's about... I'm an extroverted introvert. Yeah. I think, um, whereas I'm very, I recharge when I'm alone, which I think is kind of at least the most traditional definition I've heard. Um, but can kind of turn on the social thing. Uh, but, and if you, if you find you can't, cause I am not one admittedly who can like sit and just be quiet and like sit there for 20 minutes or whatever. Um, but, or find something that slows life down for you. Like for me, it's like cycling mm. by myself, mm-hmm. get on a bike, just go mm-hmm. and I'm just like, no, I'm not listening to music. So, I mean, sometimes I am, but I'll make sure there's a stretch where I'm just thinking um, and kind of conversing with myself, like checking in with myself. Mm-hmm. And it, it's super therapeutic. Like if I'm having a rough day, it's, I'll be like, I need that. I can need that right now. And a lot of people can achieve that through meditation. I applaud them for it. For me, I do have to find kind of like something that there's still something I'm doing, um, but it slows things down.
1: Along those lines you know, with, with kind of mental health and checking in with yourself and, you know, finding that, that peace. uh, I feel like exercise certainly helps a lot. Sure. You're someone who's incredibly in shape. I think as long as I've known you, you've always just been super, uh, I was gonna say jacked, but uh, more like, yeah, discipline. Yeah. That's perhaps a better term. Uh, tell me a little bit about like your routine and how you've been able to like year after year just kind of keep that consistency up is it something that you just put these like blocks in place where you know you follow like a set of you know steps every day that you take and you just don't think about it and dive in or do you kind of like motivate yourself in different ways or do you have like kind of a reward at the end that how do you approach it it's a
0: consequence i think it's a consequence of um, my family is well, very like-minded in this way. So again, that's been a helpful start, but I've always had to be like out of necessity, like super organized.
2: Mm.
0: And again, part of that was you have, you have to move a lot. Mm. You got to have your house, your, your shop in order. <laughs> even when you're like eight, you got to know where all your toys are. Cause those are moving with you and you're allowed <laughs> two or three boxes and that's it. And so I've always had like a lot of structure around my life. Um, uh, again, not necessarily even by choice. And I think that kind of manifested itself into like a, my own fitness regimen as well. Um, for a long time, I got real like nerdy with it, um, with a very detailed ca- calorie counting with specific weight goals in mind, um, depending on what my objectives were at the time. Like, I mean, documenting everything, every calorie I burned, I've worn an iWatch or something equivalent for years now. Um, and when you do that, for long enough you get really good at because it's just math you mm-hmm. get really good at ballparking parking nutrition which is the most com- important component of all of this but from there it's just been a not being satisfied with the day unless i've checked some sort of physical box uh and from there you build out a routine right and so like alternating between cycling which also has that calming effect that i mentioned uh, but like you know rigorous calorie burn through like an exercise class lifting that sort of thing um and it's it's selfishly in some ways to the point where like if I don't do one of those things I'm not going to be able to sleep Mm. uh it's just now like baked in there it's it's probably purely mental at this point it's not as if if I don't exhaust myself I can't sleep it's just mental you haven't done one of those things today you don't get to sleep (laughs) you're trapped
1: in your own head until you do that um so that's really I'm I'm one of those people who I have to close my rings at the end of the day and uh, and I know it's annoying. People are like, you know, oh, Standle. you you do that like, and it, but honestly, uh, I it does help me. It, it kind of, uh, you know, sometimes I especially the stand ring. That's, that's the most the annoying question. one. But it's true. I'm sitting at my desk like a lot every day, Absolutely. and I did, and I did get a standing desk, and that definitely helped me because yeah. it gets the blood flowing more. And yeah. I kind of do move around a little bit. Sure. Uh, but. Honestly, the rings like and and every like quarter, I'll try and like take it up a notch. So mm-hmm. instead of doing like you know forty five minutes of exercise a day, I'll sure. do an hour and then you know an hour and fifteen. And same with the move. But yeah, uh, honestly, it's got me in this mindset though, where I have to either structure my day or I have to find moments where I need to close these, or else I don't feel good at the end of the day that I haven't closed them before midnight. That's right, and it only gets.
0: You know, it only gets harder, which is true just as we age. I, I would say it's the most important routine you can build mm-hmm. in like the first probably, you know, certainly the, the early adult years because then it sticks with you, right? If you really fall off the wagon on like the health and fitness front, that is so hard to rebuild. Yeah, It's so hard to rebu- rebuild the drive, the discipline, like the actual day-to-day of it all. Um, it's much easier just to like sort of maintain that as a healthy habit. I agree. Not everyone can do that. And there's some, there are health reasons that people can't do that. And like if I shattered my femur, right, like that would really put, put me back. But just prioritize it. Mm-hmm. Like even at even when I was at a desk job early days, having to be in the office from, you know, eight to five, like I was in the gym at lunch.
1: Right. Your, your future self will thank you. No doubt about that. But, you know... It, Whenever I like, you know, visit the doctor, it's like, ah, you know, uh, and I think one of the biggest vices I have is like not eating super well. I've definitely gotten better with that recently, but it's like, well, I am like exercising, but it's like, no, no, no. But Chris, this is going to manifest in like a few years from now, you know, you're not feeling it now. You feel young and healthy and good, but Mm -hmm. get the exercise. in now your future self is going to thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And you know as as you start to get older a little bit you're like ah okay i kind of can kind of see what, how those decisions or like yeah. those 6 months or that those 12 months of my life you know i wasn't taking care of myself and i kind of feel it a little bit now
2: yep
1: and another part of that too is you know, i started doing yoga mm. actually more so because i felt very stiff in the morning and whenever i did it it just felt amazing because i was you know your your joints and like Agile, your bones and you're like yeah. yeah you just kind of like right stretch it all out. So even if it's just doing like 10, 15 minutes of that, mm-hmm. I think, uh, and also I, it, it, helps with just like my thinking and mm-hmm. my focus too. Like I feel more, you know, brings up the energy, which then I think, you know, there's a lot of science behind the blood flowing to your brain a lot more. And, uh, I think, yeah, if, if, if anyone's able to just get in like that little bit of exercise each day, uh, it, it, I think it'll do wonders for you. And then if you build that habit like you're doing, um, you know, each and every day, that's going to be something that's going to be hugely beneficial for you, you of course. know, for forever. Of course.
0: Yeah. Yep. Most, most uh, important investment.
1: Yeah. Right? So speaking of investment, another thing that I, you know, admired about you, especially in, in college was, I don't think you did this as much in college, hmm. uh, or at least when I knew you, but a little bit before, but you did some day trading. yeah. And I remember you're, you know, very into like the financial markets and you kind of understood how that worked. And that's something that I think a lot of people now these days, you know, with crypto and all that, the the, the term investment is right. become a lot more of like a buzzword. But I do want to talk about that a little bit because I think it is important. You know, there's a lot of people whose habits, you know, when they they get money or they get their paycheck or income, sure. is just to, you know, spend it or maybe they'll put a little bit aside or they don't know where to like invest their money. Mm-hmm. What kind of advice or thoughts would you have for people, even if they have just like you know, hundred bucks or so, to 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 put? Um, I would I would for money that they care about. Yeah, uh, I would
0: echo the advice of like every well educated finance or economist person which is put it in a very boring long-term index fund and let it sit there until your retirement Mm -hmm. truly like there was there's my my dad really emphasized like teaching me about the stock market because he was into it in the same kind of fun day trading way um but that was always like the top sliver which is the fun stuff where you can make money and lose money and always expect that the money that you put in on that layer where you're kind of playing Mm -hmm. around day to day you assume you can lose all of it because that's true um for the money you care about and want to build long-term boring whatever s p 500 index fund uh fidelity 2050 retirement like the most boring stuff is where a bulk of your money should be truly yeah and i and i um that's always kind of been maybe my vice of sorts like in in gambling a bit with money that again i know i could lose and having wins and having losses and and um over time And so, again, let me just like reiterate that, like, put the money that you care about in boring, long term um, funds that are going to spit off on average 6% for the next 40 years so that you'll have a nice nest egg when you're ready to retire. But, and I get very nervous about how uh, tools like Robinhood and like the emergence of the retail trader, especially with COVID, have propped up grifters and speculative investments that are not backed by any sort of logic or reasoning and a lot of people are going to continue because we've already seen it these this year to lose it all mm. um fundamentals are important and i think because like my my dad taught me such an old school way of like here's a stock and you should invest in this stock if they have sound financials and you know if they have sound financials by their balance sheet and their income statement and their free cash flow and If all that aligns, and it's a company you believe in, and you think they have a product pipeline that's going to be more successful tomorrow than they are today, then that might be a good investment, right? And that's a very old school Warren Buffett way of doing things. And I think that underlies a lot of um, long-term investors who are worth their advice. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of get-rich-quick schemes that one out of a thousand people will align with and make a lot of money it and they're prone to losing all of it Mm -hmm. like i myself and i know there's a lot of opinions about this even from like very wealthy investors and i am not an expert on this and i wouldn't pretend to be but like things like crypto and nfts the technology behind it is fascinating and probably has a lot of utility um but what it's manifested as today with cryptocurrencies that can't readily be used as as actual transactional currency and nfts that really just have collectible value more so than underlying smart contract value are the beanie babies of the month
2: mm-hmm.
0: right like there's i just don't see a fundamental case for utility of what they are detached from the underlying technology that it, that of course has a lot of promising mm-hmm. prospects
1: by the way, quick disclaimer: uh, on this podcast, none of this is moly, professional don't financial don't advice. Do uh, is anything we just- <laughs> say. <saying. laughs>
0: don't do it. No, I do. I do want to talk no. a little bit
1: about crypto, though, uh, and I Got know it. it's kind of you know the, the buzzword now. But I remember in 2015, I, I worked for the Recording Academy, the Grammys, and one of the, one of the things I was tasked with was uh writing interesting articles for our website and for a medium blog. Yeah. And one thing I was researching was this uh firm by Imogen Heap who sang uh yeah, fro, fro, um uh hide and seek.
0: Yeah, good night and go, hide and seek, great album. And
1: she she started this business called I think it was called Mycelium or something okay. like that. And Essentially described like the blockchain technology and how mm-hmm. it could change everything. Wow. With okay. how when a song is streamed, like straight away the you know percentage of royalties from the song will go you know straight to the producer and to the artists and the publishers. Essentially cutting off like the middleman and sure. the labels. Sure. And I was just like, this is insane. Why is no one talking about this? I remember bringing it to my boss at the time too, and. And she's like, okay, yeah, like, I guess it's kind of interesting. But I just remember my mind being so blown by this and didn't understand why more people were talking about it. And then, sure enough, a few years later, you know, I I still, you know, think we have a super long way to go. But now we're starting to see that. But I think with anything, especially technology Mm -hmm. and its like initial stages, you know, there's going to be either like bad actors or, you know, California gold rushes. And, trying to figure out how to make the most money. And, you know, especially with NFTs. Uh, But, but I think there is, you know, utility out there and there is more that's coming to fruition. And I think now we're kind of like ending that period where uh, people are are realizing like what the scams are and what kind of like the overhyped, you know, Mm -hmm. projects and such are, but what's your take on you know, the market now and perhaps where things can, will go in the yeah, future?
0: Yeah, there, right now, I think the underlying utility of blockchain, which I, again, am not an expert on by any stretch of the imagination, um, it, it's, it's, we're still in the tech without a use case phase, mm. right? Because initially what we were all told is like, okay, well, it's transactional currency. And it's going to be kind of a peer-to-peer way to exchange funds, which, fine. Um, and, and then soon, then it's going to be widely adopted by vendors, right? So you'll have this B2C means of transacting with something like cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. That was the initial use case, right? That very quickly pivoted to like, okay, well, maybe not because frankly, like technology moved into that space to where now I tap my phone to pay for coffee, right? But transacting in US dollars in a way that I'm confident is secure, Right. And then we move to, it's a, it's a hedge against inflation, which did not bear itself out at all. Right. (laughs) Like clearly, you know, um, and now we've kind of moved into this more, again, smart contracts where if I sell something to you and then you sell it to something else, um, I get a, a cut of that in the art space or in the real estate space. There's a lot of potential for that, but I just still, and, and there's enough big names and enough big money behind it that eventually we will land on, I think, a widely adopted use case, but that's not going to happen until my mom can explain it to you. Right. And my mom is not the best at technology, <laughs> right? Um, and until our parents' generation can explain the use case, uh, then we still haven't found whatever the steady state utility is going to be. Mm-hmm. I firmly believe that. My mom can explain how she Venmos me money. My mom can explain how she uses her phone or watch to tap on the little thing to pay for her groceries, right? Because it's very easy and intuitive and you can explain it in 30 seconds, right? We don't yet have an a in-market use case for the blockchain or cryptocurrency that my mother can understand. right? And until we do, I would not trust anything that I see.
1: I think one of the great ironies here is you know the whole you know point of the blockchain is decentralization and there's no like central governance yeah you know or you know no one's acting as like the bank supposedly but then you have like these massive businesses like binance and you know such that
0: they're centralizing as we've seen, the that they
1: are centralized and they d- can go down and people's sure. wallets can get you know frozen and right. you know there's fraud and all that so I think until we really it's hard because you know a lot of like the the community who's behind blockchain and the decentralization like are not willing to accept having like a you know centralized uh either governance body mm-hmm. or like system but it's almost like kind of needed you know it makes me think of like lord of the flies and mm-hmm. uh you know on the big like I don't know. Now we're gonna get into politics, like you know, like the socialism versus capitalism. Sure. But I think it sounds like, seems like there needs to be some type of a, a balance there, you know, in order to really make this work. Totally, I want faith in
0: the infrastructure that sits beneath my money going from point A to point B. Of course, B, always I want infrastructure that I can believe in, and frankly, I want infrastructure that there's oversight into, right? Um, in the same way, like again traveling a lot outside the country, as you've done as well, like I've had my personal banking information stolen several times, whether Mm -hmm. that's my credit card, my debit card, whatever. I have swiped my debit card or like gotten cash out in a foreign ATM. And the next day there was like a card reader in there and my bank account is emptied, right? It's happened to me several times. Oh shit. Right? Where I log in the next morning or I get the notification that like, five transactions of $800 went through before my bank cut it off. It's happened to me several is times. Your credit card. Uh, it's happened with my credit card. It's happened with my debit card Ooh. several times, both of them. Mm. Um, and I can identify the source of when it happened, right? Don't throw your receipts away. If something looks a little bit off with the reader, there probably is something off with the
1: reader. I, I always grab it at gas stations right. and move it around. Yeah. Like just in but case, But what
0: I did was I called my bank and said, Hey, here's what happened. And they said, Yep, give us 30 minutes to look into it. And the next day, all my money was back, right? I want that sort of structural security and oversight into my financial transacting, right? That's not to say there aren't ways to be scammed out of money. But if I'm transacting in cryptocurrency with its current infrastructure, right, That, and I lose all my money because someone gets the information to my physical or cloud wallet, I'm done right? Mm -hmm. I'm toast. Mm -hmm. There's no insurance mechanism because there's no proper regulation behind any of this. And people can criticize centralization and government all they want until they need help. Mm -hmm. And then I think they'll quickly realize that, oh, I really do wish this was FDIC insured. And I really do wish I maybe had some big bank who has the ability to quickly backfill those funds without asking, you know, frankly, all that many questions. Yeah. Right. Um, and so people can say they don't want decentralization all they want, but when shit hits the fan, they do want it very quickly.
1: Yeah. I think we're, like we're talking about earlier at dinner, it's easy for people to, you know, play the blame game or say, you know, the Fed sucks, the government sucks, yeah, they don't worse. have my best interests at heart, you know, which may or may not be true. Yeah, um, find me something better. But exactly. It's like, what then find me something what's better? better? And, yeah. you know, how, how do we prove it, that it works? And, you know, how, how do we put the structures in place to actually make this happen. How do we scale it? So millions, billions of people, you know, yeah. it's, it's not easy. And I think people like, like to oversimplify yeah. how they can solve these kind of issues. It's easy to forget
0: um, that tomorrow there are going to be less people in poverty on this planet than there were today. And that will be absolutely true the next day. And that will be absolutely true the next day. Mm. Um, and that has been the trend now for like 70 years, maybe more, right? It's really easy to get caught up in, oh, wow, things are awful. And I'm not saying things are perfect. They're, they're certainly not. But at a macro level, again, with a perspective that is, once you kind of get outside your bubble of your community or this country or and look at things on a global scale, the world in a lot of ways is getting better for the average person who lives on it every single day.
1: I think about that a lot, also primarily because there's so many people online that are like, oh, I wish, you know, it's not the same as it was back in the day. And I was like, was back in the day really better? Like, point me to any time, you know, like even not that long ago, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, yeah, women can vote. There was crazy races. Starving to death. Um, And and I think, again, back to our earlier points, because we're given so much more information, like we think, you know, we think that that's all happening now, like all of it. But a lot of this stuff, like people are beheaded back in the day for like no reason, you know, and it's like, so would you really like to go back to, Mm -hmm. you know, the constitutional day?
0: (laughs) Yes. Again, statistically speaking, for the average person, life is a lot better today on this planet. And there are a lot of things that are, you know, you know, that could upend that trend, no doubt. But then they were last year and the year before and the year before and the year before. On like an exponential basis, people are bring, being brought
1: out of poverty on this planet.
0: And that's a win. Yeah. And that's a win.
1: So you are the flying foodie Uh-oh. on Instagram.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to scale back my social media consumption. But uh, what I about like, production? I though? like taking pictures of food.
1: I always have. Tell me a little bit about that. I remember in college, yeah. uh, you're very active on Yelp, and and I think you, you probably still are. No, I, I ga- honestly I haven't gave it checked. up in COVID. Oh, yeah. you did.
0: I felt too bad, like.
1: Dude, you're Yelp elite for. I felt
0: so when, many years when restaurants were like struggling to keep the lights on. Mm. I couldn't. I wouldn't be able to give like honest feedback. Fair point. So then I just stopped. But it's because my both my parents were very good cooks. You know this firsthand. Oh yeah. Both my parents are amazing cooks. Uh, and to the extent where like I very very rarely went out to eat as a kid we're talking up until up and through high school like I didn't frequently go out to eat outside of like high school lunch right Um until college because my parents were both amazing at, at cooking and they love it so much that my mom cooked every meal right or my dad and packed lunch every day hmm. right and so it wasn't until college that I was like, whoa, restaurants are cool. <laughs> like my parents are great cooks, but these restaurants can do some things that my parents couldn't do or new foods or, or new cultures. Right. And then it started motivating travel food did, which was enabled by working in the airline industry. And I started traveling for the purposes of food mm-hmm. um, to the point where I would spend and still do spend significant amount of free time scoping out, say like a city, whether I've been there before or not identifying kind of what the must see food places are ranging from like the kebab stand that opens at 9. PM to the Michelin star restaurant that you have to get a reservation for months in advance. And that started being the motivator for my travel, which frankly takes you to often a lot of very boring cities that the other, but that have very good food.
1: Right. Right. Um, this might be a tough question, but top three meals they've had. I know in my life, uh, this month? <laughs> I would say, let's say in the past like 10 years, like since you really started traveling like oh a lot God. more. Um, or at least ones that stood out to you. Yeah. Like, very no- memorable Number meals. one
0: um, is a restaurant called La Nacional. It's in Monterey, Mexico. It's mm-hmm. a it's otherwise traditional steakhouse. But everything was like the best iteration of that I've ever had. And what was crazy is like dishes that I wouldn't normally like or order cause this was at a work thing where they just ordered everything like for everyone I loved. Mm-hmm. And so they'd have like a, I don't know, a halved artichoke that was grilled and like with some, you know, Himalayan salt or whatever on there. I was like, this is the best artichoke I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. And then they brought out steak, which, and I don't, I don't actually like steak that much. Um, and I had steak. That's probably the best steak I've ever had as someone who doesn't usually like or order steak. Uh, so La Nacional, Monterey, Mexico. I think there's maybe two of them. And I hope that they're still open. I'm sure they are. Um, that's number one, and has been for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, oh god! There, there was a, there was a like classic. In this was in Italy, in Naples, a like classic um, Neapolitan style pizza that the entire thing was halved, halved long way, and made oh, into a interesting. sandwich. So it was oh. a pizza, but you cut it in half this way. And then you put like a traditional Were Italian. Are you grabbing like the cheese on top? I I yeah, use a fork and knife.
1: Oh, okay. That was only two or three years ago. What what was like it's in amazing. between the or what was like the a traditional
0: Italian sub type thing? Interesting. Like almost like a focaccio style sandwich. I don't know. It sounds like a weird Frankenstein dish, but it's just like absolutely out of this world. Um that's I that's probably number two. Um and then number three was a Oh God, I can't remember his name, but a chef would do like these underground restaurant things where like, it's not really sanctioned or probably like health code compliant, but I love those. It was, it's crazy. Was it, I was it Wolf and but they do a great one in LA called, um, Wolf's mouth. Yeah. I think I've been which in is a one. great one. Yeah. Um, but this was in Dallas, Texas. I don't think they do it anymore, but they did. It was called the the theme of the evening was like poison and every dish had an ingredient that... And everyone died at the end. If, <laughs> that if not prepared the right way, would kill you. Oh, right? interesting. And, and they'd walk you through where they sourced the ingredients. And so like one of the dishes that they had was um, blowfish oh, or yeah. scorpion fish. Yeah, one of blow those fishes fi- yeah, no, is blowfish. super
1: will kill you. Yes, blowfish. If yeah. they don't
0: prepare it correctly. Mm-hmm. And so that was on the menu. They had these various mushrooms that if not prepared correctly, would kill you, right? Um, and it was... Absolutely out of this world, and one of the most unique dining experiences of my entire life.
1: That sounds really cool, actually. It was awesome because um, you're probably slightly like on edge a little bit, but it's it something makes you can it. Never more do exci- in a restaurant. Yeah, yeah, right. And I'm those are honestly <laughs> like the best
0: meals I've ever had
1: in my life. That that I can't even think
0: to mention because it was just in someone's home, mm-hmm. right? Um, not like oh, go to this restaurant, order this menu item. Like that was in someone's home. Um, and it's something that a restaurant couldn't do, which is like a whole nother layer of, of dining. That's like so fascinating. Yeah. Um, and hard to quantify. Uh, but those are, those are probably not the top three besides the number one. That really is probably the best meal I've ever had. Um, among many that, that I can't think of right now.
1: I love that. Yeah. Uh, so people can follow you flying foodie or is it flying flying underscore foodie?
0: Yeah. With underscores the flying foodie.
1: I love, you just see all these like awesome dishes from around the world you know like you mentioned some are like kind of kebab houses some you got sure. like michelin star stuff I, you michelin really stuff have there. like that variety there which is really cool so check it out uh speaking of we're gonna we're gonna wrap things up yeah. a bit uh in a second but uh, as is tradition and you know all episodes that we've done so far yeah uh I have a little gift for you. Oh my goodness. Thank you. It's a uh custom one of one art piece. Oh. they made specifically for you. Oh, that's so that's it. Nice busted idea. out. I hope you like it. I always I get nervous giving these, but don't.
0: <laughs> it's the story of me? The story of Paul?
1: It's it's a simple version. Oh. oh. But
2: my God. Oh wow. You? and just a few that elements is...
1: of like what I feel like mean a lot to you so like oh the my passport God. flying you're a huge taco fan Love. i know tacos are the best food and macaroons right there. um as well. there's anyways, on
0: there wow chris thank you man here you go man thank you that's
1: uh really special genuinely yeah and dash
0: mahal's on there that's yeah amazing For
1: um her. so hopefully you can you know thank you hang this up you got somewhere. my dog on there i did <laughs> wow. that's awesome man thank you she's here Truly. again too <laughs> thank you
0: oh yeah there she is
1: Paul, Thanks, any Chris. any um last parting words uh either of wisdom or anything you want to say to to all the listeners and watchers out there before Man, dude, we... again
0: i think it's like when 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 we get overstimulated or we feel overinformed, just like find time to be content and for on a macro level the world is well it might not always feel like it uh becoming a better place
1: totally it agree is. it is paul thank you so much for joining me sure
0: thing, dude. thank you
1: Guys, thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.